Oral History in Black and White, a podcast on American experiences of institutional racism and the need for repair. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com and the African American Redress Network. Episode 1 on Black Land Loss, Eminent Domain. Being that I grew up in my grandfather and my grandmother's house or home, I heard the story over and over again. Why our land was taken? Uh, Because the German U-boats were destroying all the merchant ships that was going from Savannah, Brunswick, Jacksonville, Charleston to England. And uh, the federal government needed a place in which they could combat these German U-boats. And the white government saw the opportunity to destroy our community. Eminent domain refers to the power of the government to take private property and convert it into public use. The Fifth Amendment provides that the government may only exercise this power if just compensation is provided to the property owners. However, eminent domain has been widely used to displace Black communities, and Black families commonly receive less for their land than do white families. Today's episode features an interview with Wilson Moran, a member of the Harris Neck Land Trust, which has been fighting to regain family property in Georgia, which was taken via eminent domain during World War II, but not returned after the land was found unsuitable for building a proposed airstrip. James Lennox, a student at the University of the District of Columbia and intern with the African American Redress Network, begins the discussion. My name is James Lennox, and I'm conducting a project for reparations for slavery and the African-American Redress Network about the issue of Black land loss in the South. And tonight I'm joined by Wilson Moran. Mr. Moran, I want to start off by thanking you so much for taking the time to do this. So this interview is going to focus on your early life and your family struggles with uh, the issue of land loss, as well as your involvement in your family's effort and your community's effort to regain the land. To get started, I was wondering if you could take me through just a brief history of your early life. Well, you got to remember, I was born in 1942, which is the same time that the federal government or the military claimed eminent domain and uh, forcefully moved my parents and my grandparents out of uh, the village Harrisneck. So therefore, we was uh, on the side of a road in a lean-to shack. My mother was pregnant with me in uh, July of 42. That's where I was born before they were able to build a house. We lived uh, basically outside in the forest. Uh, As I grew up, I was the sixth child, and um, I stayed uh, in my grandfather and grandmother's house. And, and that is how I know the story of how they um, how they lived. I knew the woods, uh, so he taught me all the trees, uh, the seasons of the trees, the berries, the fruits of the of the seasons. I'd go out and uh, 
And my grandma told me, said, where were you, boy? I said, I wasn't nowhere. And she said, yes, you were. She said, I see your mother's purple. In other words, I was eating the uh, winter berries, which turned your teeth and your lip and your tongue blue. So uh, it was hard to lie. But uh, the joy was I was akin uh, to the environment, you know, the wind, the sun, the moon, the birds, the trees, the springs, the water springs. And I knew where all the freshwater springs were. And I'd just walk through the woods and eat berries or nuts and drink the water. One question I have is you were growing up. You, you mentioned you were born the same year. Your family lost the property to uh, eminent domain. And, you know, there was, from my research, from what you've told me and what I've you know read, there was this lengthy process of trying to get the land back. I guess one of my questions would be how, at an early age, did your family explain what had happened in terms of losing their land? How did they explain it to you as a child? Well, being that I grew up in my grandfather and my grandmother's house or home, um, I heard the story over and over again. Why our land was taken? Uh, because the German U-boats were destroying all the merchant ships that was going from Savannah, Brunswick, Jacksonville, Charleston to England. The federal government needed a place in which they could combat these German U-boats. Government saw the opportunity to destroy our community. So they led the uh, military to Harris Neck and told them, said, this is a close place you can have. You can combat the German U-boats from this place called Harris Neck. Even though there was a thousands of uninhabited land surrounding us. But this was the white people and their government to destroy our culture. So therefore, they were military, not knowing where Harris Neck was led to Harris Neck by the local government of McIntosh County. It was told to me over and over again. And they claim eminent domain. And in two weeks, our culture, our family were almost completely destroyed. How did you see that that loss, that destruction as a child? How did you see that impacting um, the elders in your family? In one word, I would call it trauma. Uh, a lot of the old people, if you go to our cemetery, you'll find out that they died 1942 to 1947 even though they, most of them were just plain healthy, they just died because they had no other alternative. The dream was completely shattered. So, yeah, I saw that, and I saw um, the trauma and some of their children. But my grandfather and my grandmother, and my, thanks to my mom and my dad, always practiced and showed us hope that there could be a better day. That trauma, how did that impact you as a child? Oh, well, I wasn't allowed to have the hate or the anger. Because my grandfather had a way of saying, be careful who you hate because you, you wind up hating yourself. So therefore, you got to think and be strong 
and it uh, had to do with uh, our spirituality. And if, if God is for you, ain't nobody can be against you. You can be in a hole, you'll come out. And I guess that's what encouraged me to uh, get up and do. But, yeah, I was affected, but I didn't allow it to destroy me. You mentioned um, kind of the difference between you and other people in your family who were affected by it. Was that that kind of hope that your grandparents and parents uh, instilled in you? How would you describe that sense of hope? Was it faith-related? Was it just kind of the way they went about living their lives? Is that something that you've tried to instill as, as you've gone throughout your life? Uh, yeah, I've, some of them, the way that they lived their life. Well, you see it happening even in Jacksonville, Florida, Savannah, Chicago, Philadelphia. It just didn't just happen out us shooting and pillaging and carrying on. It started years ago before the way that we were treated and realizing that uh, you weren't given the opportunity to live the life of uh, the white man, so you you devised a plan of your own and hurt yourself and you hurt the others. But I I don't know, insanity? Uh, But the point is, I'm going to make it regardless. You won't let me into mainstream, so I'll create something. And that's that's what that's the way I look at it. You know, I see it, uh, the trauma, and and then you and it goes is generational, and it's happening and it's still happening, but it just doesn't just started in recent generations. In terms of your adult life, I guess one thing I'm interested in, as you kind of grew and um, became a young man. What was what was your life like then, and what was your involvement like in that fight to get the land back? We started this movement in 1971. I'd gone away from home when I was 18. In 1971, I'd, I came back home with a, a wife and two kids. And one of my military buddies who used to live next door he says, we don't have any land that we can live on in Harris Neck. He says, we need to start fighting to get our land back so we can have what uh, our parents had before they took it from us. And the man, this uh, young man, his name was Elliot, Elliot Campbell. So we started organizing some guys, and that's how it started in 1971, 72. And uh, finding a way uh, forward in which we could get the 2,687 acres of land back. And that's how we started, just sitting underneath the tree talking about it. And eventually, uh, 1971-72, we did start the house neck movement. So starting in 1942, I have the quote here. It says that most but not all black owners are paid a few dollars per acre for their land. Did your family receive any sort of payment? Uh, yeah, some of them did. But uh, the thing was, there was uh, a white guy who lived adjacent to the Harris Neck community, and he was uh, a county commissioner. They gave 
whoever it was gave the money to him to pay the families who were being displaced. He liked some of them and some of them he didn't like. Some of them he gave more, some of them he gave less. And then some of them he did have no respect, didn't get anything at all. He just had to get out. So that's the truth. And then the, the, some of the one or two white families that had land, and the, the, well, they got the lion's share. That kind of leads me into our next question was, you talked about it earlier in that there were there was land that wasn't being used for anything that could have easily been chosen. It kind of points to, as it's referenced in this chronology, as this local conspiracy from county officials. And I'm quoting the chronology right here. It says, newly discovered documents support this contention of a local conspiracy, or at least duplicitous by behavior by county officials, not only in the 1942 taking, but also after the war when the country when the county acquired Harris Neck. Have you seen these documents that support that conspiracy as you've been involved in this legal battle? Yeah, I'm doing this since 1971. I've been there since the beginning, the marching, but uh, we've been close, I know, at least two times. The system found a weak link in our community. Then we went right back to zero again. Hearing about, obviously, this horrific injustice with the land, I know from looking over the documents that at the same time of that gross misuse of, you know, eminent domain laws and, and really horrific injustice, that there were also reports, allegations that the local government, uh, McIntosh County, was allowing these illegal activities to occur, um, drug smuggling, prostitution, et cetera. What was the community's yeah. reaction to that in terms of not only have you lost your land, which in itself is a great offense to justice, but there's also all these illegal activities that the government's allowing to go unpunished. Well, what can a black person do? You got to realize uh, we lived in a red state. So what are you going to do? You tried to get along so your kids could survive so that maybe they will be able to fight a better fight than you can fight. I've never been so embarrassed in my life when I went into a gas station with my father as we were delivering crabs and this uh, teenager on my age called my daddy a boy. And my daddy is, uh, is my hero. And he couldn't look at me in the face. And my dad smiled, signed the, uh, for the gas, and we got out. And we didn't talk the entire time for the 30 minutes it took us to get back to the house. No. What do you think, what do you think they could do? They couldn't do anything because they didn't even know anything about even when the land was returned to the county, we didn't even know it. And then eventually they came with some kind of hocus-pocus and had some of the elders sign some kind of paper that they didn't even know what they were signing. For the most part, they didn't refuse to sign. So uh, they lived to fight another day. And that's us, uh, the, the children.
so this was really interesting to me when I'm looking over the chronology, which is in 1979, the county sheriff, um, Tom Popple, apologizes to a congregation at the First African Baptist Missionary Church of Harris Neck for not helping um, when he had the opportunity to get the land back. And he's very ill at the time. He dies not long after. He wants to, in the hospital, he asks for some leaders of the community to visit him. He's dead before they arrive. I'm reading this and my reaction is somewhere between too little, too late. And this seems yep. genuine. How, yep. I guess my question is, what was the community's reaction to that? For the most part, not much. We understood what greed and power is, and we didn't have the power. We had to get permission to even bury our dead. For the most part, he earned what he got. And not long after, also in 1979, you have this protest. I was wondering if you could take me from, you said you moved back and you started this movement in 71, and you had the protest in 79. Could you kind of walk me through those early stages of First of all, we had to get enough people concerned to form a movement and for to have the uh, courage to march. We we got together, mostly people my, at my age, we in the, what, 30s, and we started having meetings in the church. They were ready to negotiate with us and give us a portion of the land back. That's just how strong it was. But it got to a point that even 60 Minutes took interest in it, and they came, came down here and spent uh, two weeks down here. That got national attention. So the local white people got a little scared because we were going to find out what they did. So was that something that was motivating to say, hey, take us out of this picture. We'll give you some land back. We just don't want to be involved anymore. Oh, yeah. Uh, they are going to do that. But... You always find a weak link in the chain. A couple of people says, no, we don't want some, we want it all. Some people says, well, let's get some. And it went from one thing to the other, and then we got nothing. So I'm pretty sure I know where you stand on this, but which side were you on? Were you okay with the idea of getting some land, or were you unequivocally, no, I want all of it back? I wanted some because I knew we'd get all of it. And we got our foot in the door, we could get the rest. Because uh, I understood what they were saying about the wildlife. But like my papa says, the wildlife, we had them all the time. You know I mean, we had more when he was growing up than they were when they were trying to say that uh, they were protecting the wildlife. So if the government was a peace and you can still have the wildlife, uh, we'll get, we could get the rest of it. We, we, did, we needed to break it down so they would relent and say, okay, we'll give you 800 acres. And the, the primary thing was as long as we could got, get to the riverfront, then we could have our own boating uh, enterprise. So that opens up to the sea. So the crabs, the fish, the shrimps, the crabs, the oysters, the conks, the plants, we could start when hit laces, multi-million dollar business. But they owned all the waterfront, even today, because... They took a couple of us and threw us for a loop. So in other words, they they were able to leverage kind of the internal disagreements yep. against you all. Yeah. A little rubbing of the head and slapping on the back. 
and then we began to fight among ourselves. Absolutely. I want to rewind a second because there's an important event that I feel like we haven't really discussed yet, which is in 1979. Again, I'm quoting the chronology from the Harris Neck Land Trust. We have former members of the Harris Neck community and their descendants, as well as several national civil rights leader, converge on Harris Neck in an attempt to reclaim their land. People go on to Harris Neck, set up tents, and prepare for construction of new buildings. So that's in April 28th. And on May 2nd, four Harris Neck descendants are arrested by the federal marshals and sentenced to a month in jail in Savannah. Could you walk me through that whole scene, that process, your involvement with the protest, the scene at the protest? Yep. Yeah, we moved down there and we stayed down there uh, day and night. And then uh, all of a sudden here comes the Georgia State Patrol and the U.S. Marshals, right? Uh, we already decided who was going to jail. <laughs> you know what I mean? So my first cousin, Reverend Timmons, uh, my other cousin, Hercule Anderson, my other cousin, uh, Chris McIntosh, and uh, I think it was Reverend Clark, the guy from Atlanta. He's very fiery. They came in, and all of us had moved off with those four guys off the property. And they they dragged them off. They dragged them off. We were all standing there looking there, State Patrol, the U.S. Marshals, and uh, they didn't say a month. They, I think they said for 15 days. Something happened. They uh, were getting so much press time and news time that uh, they figured this would be one way to cool it down. So after, I think, the 16th or 17th day, they let them out. But nothing changed. But you're out there all of those days protesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we were marching. I was signs on there. you got to realize, <laughs> even when I was in college, uh, we integrated Savannah, at Savannah. I was at Savannah State College. So it wasn't nothing new for me. They got out, and we went back, and they thought it would cool off. But we continued to march. Even uh, Reverend Lowry came down, and Dr. King's... Uh, Sun came down. But we just weren't, even though we got a lot of press time and all this and 60 minutes and all, we just weren't organized to the point that we could just get over that that hump. How did your prior experiences when you're in college at Savannah State and you're organizing and protesting segregation, how did that, what did you take away from that experience that you're using later uh, once a group gather on one accord, I don't care how powerful the people in power are, you can bring them to the knees because it hits them in the, in the pocketbook. Uh, you understand, financially. Well, uh, Harris Snake uh, wasn't hitting anybody financially, if that makes sense. But if you stop riding the bus and you stop buying the products downtown, now you got to realize, uh, and uh, when I was, oh, when I was in Savannah State, you couldn't try on uh, a hat unless you're going to buy it, even if it was too big or too small, because they you you couldn't just try on hats. Same thing with shoes, <laughs> you know, we all clothes. But uh, when you stop buying the product. 
and those merchants saying, hey, we got to do something about this. Let them drink the water. Let them eat the hot dogs at the stand because we're losing money. Well, that's a different type of uh, a product. But Harris Neck is entirely different because, you know, nobody was uh, getting hurt but the guys, who, people who were protesting. That's an interesting point to make where you have that, like, tenable, like, easily identifiable, hey, we're going for your pockets, we're boycotting you, we're, you know, hurting with your money, and then it's different yeah. Harris Neck where you don't have that, like, identifiable no. thing you can go after that's hurting those in power. They didn't want us to have the land back because we had too much power and we weren't under their thumbs. So the word is we can't let these uh, Negroes uh, run that community like that. They don't need us. We can't get in. We're going to have to do something about this. We need to destroy them. Well, they did it in Tulsa. They did it in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, They did it in Florida. It wasn't nothing new. The only thing about that is they didn't kill us, but they did burn some of us out. Was that directly in response to the protests in 79? When they ran us out of Harris Neck, uh, some of us didn't meet the timeline, so they, they burned the people's houses okay. down. Have you ever thought about or how do you picture your life, the life of your family members, community members, being different had you not had this land taken from you? Well, the first word comes to my mind, like I told you, the first is trauma. Uh, thankful for my grandma, my granddad, and my mom and dad. Uh, they got us, and when I mean us, the children, over it, even after I, you know, I was born the same year we were forced off the land. Uh, but I was given the education as long as I, as I knew my name, as I knew my prayer. They taught me the story. But they taught me in a way that I could fight uh, for it, but not in anger. Uh, that's about the best way. And don't let it affect me going forward in my life. Thank you for that answer. I guess one of my questions would be, how did you see members outside your family within the community dealing with this? As I told you before, a lot of the elders just gave up. And they died. If you go now cemetery, you'll see that a lot of them died in the uh, middle to late 40s. My uh, mother taught that I should get educated as the rest of the children and uh, then uh, become a part of the system so I can help change the system. Absolutely. And I know from our discussion and just my own personal research that so much of your life has revolved around changing this system, continuing this fight. How do descendants of families who've lost their land, how do you identify yourselves? What role do you see this loss that you and your family has suffered playing in your identity, if any at all? I know I had to keep going. While fighting for the land, I still had to educate myself and my wife and my children and my sisters and my brothers um, and to help them stay, um, remain strong and believe uh, that if you're part of the system, you can change it. This interview with Wilson Moran of the Harris Neck Land Trust was conducted by University of the District of Columbia student James Lennox and produced by Lottie Lieb Dula. 
Special thanks to Dr. Linda Mann of the African-American Redress Network, a collaboration between Howard and Columbia Universities, and Tamara Roan of reparationsforslavery.com. Reparative contributions to the Harris Neck Land Trust are welcome. Please check out their website at www.harrisnecklandtrust.org. Thank you. You've been listening to Oral History in Black and White, a podcast on American experiences of institutional racism and the need for repair. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com and the African American Redress Network.